This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Grootz. Today, remember every ginseng seed. There was this one time when I was on a walk with a friend and I told him I was just so homesick. I'd been in the U.S. for two years at that point, but it still felt like it was a visit that had gone on too long and I wanted to go home and sleep in my own bed. And my friend said something I've been thinking about ever since. He said, everyone in America is homesick. He may have been overstating it just a little bit, but I've come to understand what he means. Where I'm from, Belgium, you pretty much stay where you're born. Here you move, for college, for jobs, for love. Maybe everyone is homesick. One poet who always feels the pull of home is Chelsea Harlan. She grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains in an old chestnut log cabin deep in the forest with a mom who knows every creek and tree stump and bird around her and can tell you the backstory for each of her neighbor's horses. And when you read the poems in Chelsea Harlan's debut collection, Bright Shade, You're right there with her, on that scraggly mountainside, picking wild chamomile. And you see how dear it all is to her, how infused with golden light. And yet, she too moved away. First to Charlottesville, then Brooklyn, California, and about a year ago, New York State. That's where she was when I sat down to talk to her. She was working at a very dreamy-looking, tiny public library in the Catskills. Which sounds like a too-good-to-be-true kind of writer's life. Um, can you tell me what it's like and if it is really so dreamy as, as I imagine it to be? Like, what are your days like? How did you get there? Sure, yeah. Um, I would say it is too-good-to-be-true. Um My husband and I, we've kind of been bopping around here and there and everywhere for the last two years. We were out in California for a time on a few different farms. I spent some time down at my mom's in Virginia, where I was living in a shed last spring and um, sort of throwing myself into it, a different kind of romance with writing. And we found ourselves back up this way last summer, originally for a cousin's wedding, but we kind of just stuck around And yeah, I don't think either of us really expected to be here for as long as we have, which is really just a year and some change. And I was looking for part-time jobs last fall and I've always thought it sounded like fun to work in a library. And I'd always loved the idea that like Philip Larkin was a librarian and um, happened to write many of his poems working behind the circulation desk. And Yeah, it's a long story, but we had a pretty terrible <laughs> director. And in the last six months or so, uh, there, there was a library revolution. We succeeded in overthrowing <laughs> this person, <laughs> um, which sounds really bad. And, and um, I guess I just never expected that, you know, within the world of of a little library that there could be this kind of 
drama. But yeah. then I'm, I'm realizing, like, maybe that's why I joined in the first place, <laughs> is the intrigue, you know, the sort of, yeah, the, the dust on the spines of all these books. And it has been really lovely. Um, and so I've found myself in the position of interim director. and um, Oh, you, uh, I was just going to ask, so who's the director <laughs> yeah. now? It's you. Right. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um, which is particularly... Uh, Shakespearean, or I'm I'm now sort of faced with the high stakes of you know what what happens if I'm the yeah what happens you know when, now that I have this power and will it uh, will it corrupt it come, you will it corrupt me yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what do you think so far <laughs> <laughs> yeah so far um, I like to think I'm using my powers for good if I really half the time don't really know what it is that I'm doing but I will say that it's been really fun. I mean, I'm not one who's typically comfortable in a leadership role. And so um, I do view it as a kind of collaborative mm. job. And we do have a permanent director coming on in October. So um, this is sort of a, uh, the temporariness of my position is also sort of magical. Yeah, right. Um, like the real responsibilities, you can just sort of defer them. Exactly. Yeah. I'm relieved in a way to know that um, this isn't a forever position for me. Mm. It's been really fun. Um, yeah. I also feel like you have, again, from your Instagram, apologies. Mm. <laughs> I feel like you have a real talent for finding beautiful places, places that kind of invite creativity. And I'm just wondering... Like, what is your relationship to space in that kind of bigger way? Um, that's a great question and maybe very central, I think, to my, you know, concerns and um, obsessions, not just with poetry, but just being a person in, in the world. I think where I am is um, never not on my mind. I feel like I'm very aware of my surroundings Um And in terms of, yeah, how that environment affects me creatively, yeah, I think maybe almost to a fault. I'm in incredibly sensitive to, yeah, finding beauty or whatever I think that might look like in wherever I happen to be. And it's funny that you've deduced what you have from my social media. <laughs> I mean, I took it from your poems too, right? I yeah, mean, sure. let's be fair. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, good <laughs> landscape descriptions in your poems. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested also in that, what you said, like, you know, that you're sensitive to it almost to a fault. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, have you ever lived in a place where uh, it was just wrong? It was just wrong for you. Maybe it wasn't even ugly, you know, it was just not you. Yeah, sure. Um, I had a hard time being out on the West Coast and not because it wasn't an incredibly beautiful and majestic place, but I felt sort of uncomfortable. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but there was something about the sort of incessant cloudless days. They really started to grind my gears. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted the sort of excuse, maybe the kind of gothic excuse to just sort of let weather and landscape provide an emotional constraint for me that felt familiar. I missed the seasons. I missed, um, yeah, I missed the, the flora and the fauna of um, 
the mountains where I grew up. But I hate to blame California <laughs> because I really did, in other ways, have a, a really have a really interesting time, especially while we were between these farms and experiences. Um, but I wound up returning home to Virginia if because I realized I hadn't spent any time there at length anyway beyond visiting since probably I was in, yeah, in my early 20s. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I felt sort of called. It's so... Um, cheesy but it's true I and even now I mean the Catskills are very familiar and, and beautiful in their own way but I think this longing for home while I'm not even sure how to sort of call home home mm. is a preoccupation for me and when you say the, the call for home or the call of home that you're not even sure is a home, I think you said. I can't 100% remember. What, what do you mean with that? Like, is there an ambiguity there about where home is? Well, no, on one hand, I want to say, like, I'm sure of where my home is and where I came from and my relationship to the Blue Ridge and all that. But I, you know, for instance, like, surprised myself by making a home in, in Brooklyn while we were there. And sort of feeling like that was home for a time, too. And it almost couldn't be more of a different place. And so I think, yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out sort of where I am going to go. And whether or not, you know, I'll have a baby and all these sort of like great <laughs> existential life questions. <laughs> yeah, um, little questions that will just only yeah. completely reroute the course <laughs> of your life. Yeah, little little stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a couple months ago. I I went down just to visit the Blue Ridge for a quick weekend because I'd seen that there was this house in foreclosure, uh -huh. um, and not even like very close to where I grew up. But um, I just had to I had to see it, and I drove through the night and um, yeah, slept in the car for an hour so that I could see it. At, sunrise I had this idea that I would try to trespass while nobody was there and let myself into the house if it were open um I don't know and of course it was like a rainy morning so there was no real <laughs> sunrise there wasn't this sort of um and of course the the house had already been snatched up so uh -huh. I, I drove you know just to but like even that I'm not exactly in a position to be going around buying houses yeah <laughs> Um, well, um, it's. I mean, I'm also wondering because you said, you know, when you were in California, you missed the constraints of the different seasons. And I don't mean to pry, but I'm also interested in financial constraints. Um, sure. Because when I was thinking about, you know, that dreamy, you know, part-time library life, I was also thinking either you are independently wealthy or you are just living on little. Yeah, no. Which is its own constraints, you know? And so I'm just wondering if you feel comfortable, you know, do you do you want to talk a little bit about that and like what it means to you creatively? Sure. And please pry. Um <laughs> I yeah, it's a that's a great question if because I feel like financial stability has also been a sort of long lasting um concern in my life because I grew up with very little with a single mother who was 
a house painter for a long time. And um, yeah, we just never had much. But I think it's funny because I never even really noticed how little we had. It was just sort of the fact of life, eating ketchup sandwiches and not having TV and all that. And I'm actually really thankful for having you know, had those kinds of constraints if because there were some formative years with just my mom and I living on in this tiny little cabin on a creek and, um, you know, left to my own devices, creatively, I mean. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that opportunity to spend time in nature is not something that I take for granted even now and yeah regarding sort of my situation currently um it's funny I've noticed in the last decade or so that I do have a tendency maybe as an obsessive person to really pour myself into several different part-time jobs at once and sort of crank away at you know whatever work it is I'm doing for employment or for pay and then quit everything and take sort of a radical step back from responsibility. Um, But I also, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I I wasn't interested in working a number of different jobs because I'm I'm a curious person and I want to know, you know, what what all different kinds of fields of work look like. And um, my resume is a mess. (laughs) I'm sure you can imagine. Um, But, you know, I don't... It's not that I'm, you know, even even adjuncting or like working part time in this pajama store. It's not um, I'm not interested in like the lucrative capital C career. Um, so Wait, much as working I am at a just, pajama store is your idea of lucrative. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's <laughs> I, I'd be like oddly enough, those one of the higher paying hourly jobs. Or, right. It's like a little more stable, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I'm also wondering because you said you grew up with little and I think, you know, when you grow up with little, you have all this knowledge, right? Like this knowledge of how you can live, you know, with little, how you can, I don't know where you can get food for little. Maybe you grow it yourself, uh, how you can make your own, do your own repairs, you know, maybe sew your own clothes. Like there's all this knowledge that you have. And I'm wondering what happened to you you and that knowledge and that kind of ease and like yeah I know how to do things when you move to Brooklyn because a lot of things that you would do in Virginia are not possible here you have to pay for them here and you have to pay dearly so how yeah. did that go um, yeah first of all exactly I think knowledge is a great way to describe that and I think maybe you know knowledge can come from a lot of different ways of living but I, I do feel like there are certain skill sets that are you know, so inherent to a certain way of living with less. And it just so happens I enjoy, yeah, growing our own food and baking bread and all that. I mean, food, I think, is um, one of the more obvious things that stands out to me even here. There are just things that, and my husband who's working on a farm while we live here, you know, we're discovering the zone is so much different. And so there's much less you can grow mm-hmm. and obviously a green space is something to be desired in the city and you know between grocery stores and bodegas I mean not to 
you know, dramatize the socioeconomic term food desert. But I think, you know, finding quality food or, you know, vegetables besides, you know, packaged heads of flavorless lettuce um, is something of a challenge. And I'm, it's not like I'm, you know, terribly picky about any of that, but it was definitely, um, yeah, a, a change to have to make. And I mean, there's a number of so many great community gardens and things in the city. And I was working with Eagle Street Rooftop Farm for a little mm. while in, in Greenpoint. And I think too, maybe refreshingly, the pandemic has excited people about getting back outside and um, you know working with one another toward providing good food. That program, Food Not Bombs, I'm pretty sure is is nationwide. And my friends and I were volunteering with them in Charlottesville, and we would glean after the farmers markets and take all the discarded and kind of lumpy produce and then you know make a big community lunch in the park and that was awesome i think there are you know workarounds um what else do you do like can you tell me what are the things that you know how to do that maybe not all of your peers do oh man i mean we had horses when i was a kid once my mom sort of got together with my stepdad who was this he was a troubled figure, kind of a mean, redneck guy, corrections officer, cowboy sort of person, self-described cowboy. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't like him very much. And so we had these horses. He was a farrier in the days that he wasn't working at the jail. And um, my stepsister, who's his daughter, we were she and I were the same age, and so there was this expectation that we would, you know, get into horses and learn learn to ride horses, and not for show or anything, but just as a um, as a sort of situational matter of life. Um, and just like you would learn how to swim, you would learn how to ride a horse. Exactly. Like if right. you ever need to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it, yeah. yeah, it's funny. That is how I think about, you know, the end of the world and should things really come crumbling down? A skill like <laughs> riding a horse, you know, is a useful thing to know, right. I, I guess. I if don't know gas if runs all. out, you can get places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was never really a horse girl either, I think, because I had this resentment sort of um, in my relationship with my stepdad mm-hmm. um, and reflecting on all that years later and realizing like, oh no, like I, I'm grateful to have learned horseback riding. I'm grateful to have learned chess from this same person, mm-hmm. how to play chess. You know, he baked sourdough bread, you know, ages before it was a kind of a pandemic trend, obviously. Um, so I don't know in terms of skills, I think, I don't know if I would describe, you know, something like skipping stones which i do think i'm like pretty decent at is one of the things <laughs> i don't think there's a like translatable skill i mean with rising seawaters who knows when you're gonna need that yeah fair enough yeah um, i don't know why the other thing i think of is 
wolf whistling or like being able to whistle really loud. And that was something I, I wound up taking with me to the city, you know, being on my bike and being able to whistle really loud to cars. And for that matter, biking is so much like riding a horse. And I always describe it like that. Um, but I don't know, it was kind of a roll of the dice, just finding myself in Brooklyn. And I think I probably wouldn't have made that decision had it not been for the friends I had made both in college and then after college living in Charlottesville. I moved to Charlottesville for a couple of years because that was the, the most sort of um, cultured-seeming big city. Um, right. N- relatively near home. It's still sort of a two-and-a-half-hour drive. And, yeah, my, my rent was really cheap, and I had I was working in a movie theater and a bakery and a grocery store and was on food stamps for a while and made friends who had studied English at UVA. And everybody was sort of one by one moving to New York. It just seemed like the inevitable thing to do. Um, And so eventually, yeah, I I crawled my way up there. And um, yeah, I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do in New York besides continue working at bakeries. And yeah, this pajama store came later, but coffee shops to no end. Because there was an actual pajama store. I thought you were just figure of speech, (laughs) just making it up. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. It was a real, real pajama store. Our work uniform was pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) And um, can you describe it to me? What was your go-to pajama? Oh boy, we were given sets of pajamas every season when the the line would, um, you know, we would have new pajamas to promote the new pajamas. And they're sort of like classic button-up, long trouser, long sleeve storybook pajamas. And I really liked the floral prints. I liked just the breeziness of the cotton in general. But I was always, you know, biking to Brooklyn College where I was teaching, teach in the morning, take my bike on the train, hop the train back into the city, change into my pajamas. And then at the end of the day, change back into my biking clothes and bike home. So a lot of sort of uniform changes but also like a kind of character changes um Mm. in my day-to-day and I think New York is really unparalleled for that kind of self-experiment you know yeah um I I was thinking I mean when you were talking about your jobs and like you know the pajama store the bakery the library it's not like you're tracing a career like there's a plan you know like yeah um and I'm wondering, like, you know, in the absence of that kind of vision that a lot of people have, right? Like, I'm going to do these and these and these jobs so that in the future I can be, you know, this person that combines these skills, right? Um, How do you constrain yourself? How do you tell yourself, yes, this curiosity I'm investigating, that curiosity will have to wait until my next life? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I I don't know. I I think maybe there is some freedom for me anyway in relinquishing utter control over what it is that I want and how it is I'm going to get that. And I'm sort of trying to embrace not knowing. It's I was living in the shed back at my mom's and um a former professor of mine Mark Wanderlich, who's terrific and a terrific poet, was leading a class 
through the postal mail called Rilke by mail. And I guess I'd never really closely studied the Duino elegies and Rilke's work mostly sort of around or about the subject of openness or the open. You know, Rilke's like Das often, I don't know, um, the idea that animals and, and young children are uniquely positioned in life to have this kind of openness ab- about their creaturehood that is so pure and, and unmarred by the naming of things or the rules of how to be. Um, so I, I really love that idea of openness. And I I don't think that it's achievable, really, in that like pure way. But I, I do think that there is beauty in um, accepting like how much we don't know. We're such a hubristic species. Um, yeah. yeah. And do you feel like you live your life investigating your own creaturehood? I think so. I think, I don't think I know myself very well, to be honest with you. So I think actually poetry has been, or is, is a way that I, I sort of try to get at who I think I am. <laughs> But I don't think that my poems necessarily illustrate that selfhood either. I think they're just experiments in creaturehood. Um, hmm. um, I was wondering if we can get to a poem sure. and then talk a little bit about that through the poem. Maybe the one on page 15 here and there? Sure, yeah. 15. Okay. Here and there. The clouds move in like quiet neighbors. The wind walks down the hill. The cover crop has gotten really tall, and I love you. And the seas are rising, and the meteors are showering abstractly. And there are too many guns, and I love you. I wish I knew what calls the devil from the pits. I have a few theories, scattered though they are, like wildflowers in the marble yard. And I have held a mare by her matted mane and clucked my tongue to summon spring. And the azaleas mirror the god light and the dogwoods really do glow in the dark, like the meteors aforementioned. I love you and the horses idle like old cars in the shaggy field. Everyone is poor, but somehow has horses. I can't explain it, but I wish I could or how it is a horse is ever a breakable thing. Yeah, well, first of thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. First of all, I wanted to say that your simile are just wonderful throughout the book. The way this poem opens, the clouds move in like quiet neighbors, the wind walks down the hill. It, it's very like they're not, they're not, they don't like, call that much attention to themselves they're not like trying to be showy or spectacular you know it feels like that should be a saying like that's how it always has been of course clouds move in like quiet neighbors of course the wind walks down the hill right i know what that feels like <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that you think of it that way thank you um yeah I, the ordinariness of language doing playful things is of great interest to me um 
And sometimes, you know, the old adage of like, I don't even know what the adage is, but sometimes the most obvious answer is right in front of you. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I don't know. Um, also, once I start thinking of something that way, I can't, can't unsee it. You know, you can't unlearn. Yeah. Um, but I do think that like, maybe the wind isn't always walking down the hill. Maybe sometimes it's running down oh the yeah hill. yeah 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 or just uh what is that you know uh, what i can't remember the word but Summer like, somersaulting there you go <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and also what i love about so many of your poems is this kind of shift rapid shifting of registers uh yeah like that casual language and then you have that kind of legalese like I thought it was actually pronounced aforementioned, but I am probably wrong. Uh, I actually don't know it either, to be honest <laughs> with you. It's one of those words. I'm like, oh. It's one of those I words. Exactly. Well, people will know what, you know, you, you take your pick if it's aforementioned or <laughs> aforementioned. You, you know which one. Um, right. Actually, I think what we are having right now is a great proof of what I'm trying to say. Like, it's not words we usually use in speech, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm also wondering about that. Like, what is that game for you, you know, to include both the most casual and the most jargony language? I love the word game. I do think of it as a kind of game. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, maybe... Um, the curiosity that we were sort of talking around before, I almost can't help but want to include a number of different kinds of vocabularies and um, sources of speech, found text, phrases, cliches. I like to just take words and kind of put them, you know, in a party with one another and sort of <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a, a lot of... Um, tension that can be invited in placing certain words in the company of, of one another. And uh, I like that surprise. I like that toggling, that racking focus or whatever between, yeah, volumes. Um, yeah. And I thought it was also really funny here because, you know, you're talking about m meteors, you know, like the meteors aforementioned. Uh, which is really funny, I thought, because, you know, of course, a meteor is like the most like beyond our control natural phenomenon that just comes literally falling on us from the sky uh, without fair warning. Like, it's just, you know, like, can it get any further away from the law? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like I, that's a great observation. Um that sort of lawlessness is just as appealing to me yeah. as constraint, as, you know, um, as the rules themselves. Yeah. And also what I love about this poem is your contrasting, you know, uh, the seas are rising and I love you and there are too many guns and I love you. And I feel like you do that in so many of your poems, really interweave in a way that they can't be separated the good and the bad and of course this is true for for the world that you cannot separate them out but it isn't always true for art i think you know like there are happy songs and there are sad songs right i mean there are very few that are both and i think poetry I don't know if you agree. I'm just sort of I'm just sort of thinking out loud. I feel like poetry is maybe the best art form 
for interweaving the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. And if so, like, what are some of the ways that you feel poetry just really, you know, allows you to do that? Mm. I love this question because I, I do agree. I think, yeah, the Rubik's Cube sort of nature of poetry. Yeah, it's not just fun for me to play with, but it's the only sort of art form I feel comfortable in any way, and I I barely feel comfortable, um, <laughs> or it's it's effortful, you right, know, right, for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's effortful to try to articulate, you know, I think what we're getting at, which is like holding so many different thoughts or feelings mm-hmm. up in the air at one time, you know, if, if funniness and sadness and anger and wistfulness and romance if all of these feelings are like different beach balls and you're like trying to keep all of those beach balls up in the air it can be really tricky but you know I think even in the sort of clumsiness of of trying to do that other sort of surprising thoughts and feelings do sometimes reveal themselves Uh Um, uh you know in the last few years I've really been trying to figure out what is it about poetry that allows for all of those things? Like, I don't think if I wanted to write comedy, I'd be writing for a TV show or whatever, which I think for a while is something that maybe I wanted to do. But uh-huh. anymore, I can't think of anything more depressing than having to write for a sitcom or whatever. Like, that strikes me as like real sad work in a way because you cannot put both of them in there like now you have to censor part of yourself right like a um yeah exactly a a sitcom might not accommodate for all of those things at once the same way a poem might and yeah perhaps that speaks to the kind of lawlessness we were also talking about um and the sort of surprise this incredibly beautiful set of poems that are almost like found poems, you know, composed of your mother's words. Can you tell me about this series? How did that get started? And and, and then just sort of practically, how did you do it? Um, Sure. Yeah. Um, My mom, I love her so much. We're very close. And uh, she just has a really sort of beautiful way of looking at the world. And um, we talk all the time and she send mail back and forth and stuff. But it was really like maybe just before I left for the West Coast and being at such a cross-country distance from my family and, you know, which isn't, uh, wasn't the first time that had happened or, you know, there was nothing sort of unique about being away from home for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. But I, maybe the pressure of the pandemic or the worry of not knowing how I might get back if something had happened to my mom or if something happened to the farm or any of that. It was sort of like very, very present on my mind and a sort of tool for working my way through longing became, um, you know, just like 
calling her up and uh, asking her, yeah, questions with open endings. And um, I think the first of these sort of mama poems was probably Mama Recites the Birds as a sort of result and trading observations about what kinds of birds we you know, had been watching in our respective mm. corners of the country. And for that matter, bird watching and that kind of like avid awareness of birds is also sort of a pandemic thing, but has always been like a thing for my mom, even though I don't think she would, you know, consider herself an expert in that. And so without her knowing, shamefully, uh-huh. I was sort of... I was going to ask uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Was this a project she knew she was part of? Yeah, not yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, no, and I, I don't have, like, recordings of her. These are sort of just transcriptions as we spoke on the phone. I, I recorded her for other sort of situations before, and it's important to me in general to have, like, record of memories and things because I... I'm an, I'm an obsessive journaler and uh-huh. um, I try to keep record of just stuff just in the case that, you know, that stuff is for whatever reason lost. And as I sort of see my mom age, I think I've kind of taken it upon myself to be like the record keeper for her stories and, and whatever. So um, she's also just so funny and she just has this kind of like magical way of of holding another person's attention she's sort of like unflappably happy-go-lucky and I tease her about that too and I'm I'm sort of always looking to call her out on what I refer to as like her secret sadness I do think Mm -hmm. there's like a secret sadness there you know so I'm always trying to find it um anyway but yeah have you found it have you found it oh well I've asked her about it enough times that... Um, <laughs> if it would be there, you would know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, she did. She admitted to me. Um, she was like, you know, it's not so much a secret sadness as it is just like getting older and feeling as though I'm aware of the things that my body isn't capable of doing as well or as efficiently as mm. I used to. And she's a very sort of physical person she's always worked these like laborious outside jobs you know that require um being able to shovel a bed's worth of mulch off a truck and then jump off the truck and you know like and she's sort of on the verge of retirement so um that's all coming to an end but she too is a restless kind of person and I maybe I get that from her, but um, I think the the sadness, the secret sadness for her is just um, is is change. So, I think you know having these kinds of like snapshots or documents of how my mom is feeling in a given era or um, you know chapter in time is really interesting to me, and also so bittersweet because creatures do die and pass on and um yeah I, um i'm i'm curious in in how we you know organize that information and so these mama poems are, are just a sort of attempt and really casually and really in the sort of most raw way 
um, gathering that information as truthfully to the character of this person that I know so well. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't think she like, considers herself a poet, but of course she's like flattered now that these things are have taken on a form. Um, flattered, but also I think is like, would have a good laugh at herself <laughs> if she were to... I don't know. So you you would call your mom up, and then what? Would you ask her a question? Because it's only her words in the poem, right? So right. I want to know what was the other side of the conversation. What were you saying? Was it a conversation? Of it was more like, "Hey, mom, can you just speak yeah. at length about you know?" Yeah, to be honest with you, I mean, I can tell you. I feel like it's not like I would call her up to ask her, you know, like, "Oh, I want to write this down." We'd probably already be talking about something, and she. I know for a fact, like, as soon as she gets home every day, she pours a generous glass of Vendange wine, which is this, like, this is a hilarious bottle of, giant bottle of Chardonnay. And so she, we'd probably be, like, clinking glasses over the telephone together. And uh, um, she would just be riffing. She's just, like, she's the sort of person who just will, like, chat forever <laughs> kind of like I'm doing now I guess <laughs> I don't know um, do you yeah. want to read the bird poem sure yeah okay mama recites the birds I haven't really taken any notice finches cardinals blue jays titmouse Nutch hatches, crows, yellow ghost beaks. I said titmouse. Um, some woodpeckers. I have sparrows nesting in the planters. What else? Hawks. But they don't come to the feeders. Red tail hawks, warblers. Though I couldn't tell you what they look like. You should be calling Becky. <laughs> that last line is just amazing. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. My Aunt Becky knows a lot more about birds uh-huh. than I think my mom does. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you feel like in writing those poems, you got closer to knowing your mother? Yeah, and I feel like, um, you know, not to, not that the theme of all this has been the not knowing, but um, I rest okay knowing that there's so much about another person you know, and maybe my mom most profoundly that I just won't ever know. And including myself, like, you know, how much we forget that's happened in our lives that we just can't really hold on to forever. Much as I try to sort of keep record of of stuff as it happens, I do feel like I know her pretty well, but I don't have access to, you know, years and years and years of information, you know, let alone what she's thinking in a given moment and um like yeah I'm I'm not trying to crack her open completely um but yeah it is interesting because I the poem that doesn't exist in the book is mama recites the dogs and um it's because what I wound up trying to record from a, a totally separate conversation about dogs was like 12 pages of just like <laughs> stuff <laughs> like unwieldy just amount of information so 
yeah, yeah. I don't know. Speaking I of knowledge, um, right? Totally. Like she's actually sharing her knowledge with you. Yeah, and I, I feel really lucky a lot of the time for that. Yeah. And then just, again, I'm just so fascinated by the practical part of this. So, you know, there's the trees one, the horses one, the birds one. At some point, did you sort of purposely ask her about another thing? Or did all of this just come up in in the course of a conversation? Um, Yeah, I I sort of have written notes from other conversations that aren't, you know, in list form. I did sort of discover like, oh, yeah, well, you know, when I look at this in a sort of word document, it does like appear to me as a poem. Um, She had sent, (laughs) I didn't transcribe her directions on like where she sowed these ginseng seeds, but she had sent this really kind of crazy stream of consciousness text. my husband and I had sent her a bag full of ginseng seeds that she was going to plant around in the woods behind her house because it grows really well there. And so if she, that was true to her record of where she had cast them um, for her own sort of self to remember what she'd done, but to share with me too in the case that, you know, we were able to retrace her steps and so like that poem i mean all these poems are sort of verbatim from her yeah Yeah. anymore i I just i view her as a collaborator sort of in the shaping of this book um so yeah yeah and and you know you were talking about the ginseng seeds poem It, it made me laugh so much especially now that you're telling me the story that she actually was sort of reporting back like, hey, thanks for these seeds. I put them here and there, you know, so that now you know. And it's so, I mean, it, like it goes on and on, you know, on the other side of the new creek, above bottle dump first plot, between rocks and cut walnut tree, on the fence line, next other side of down tree base of poplar, fourth plot near under grapevine. Like it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. You know? and, and first of all, it's amazing that she took the time to write that but also she remembers she remembers not just every rock and vine and tree in the landscape around her but she Mm -hmm. can also just like in in her in her mind i guess retrace like all of her steps like oh here i put a seed there i mean again speaking of knowledge how deep does her knowledge of the landscape go you know it's it's incredible yeah oh it is it is incredible i am so blown away and i think there's really something to be said about familiarizing oneself with that kind of you know acute understanding of the world you whatever sort of situation it might be i mean she's um it's kind of the annie dillard effect of you know just paying <laughs> such close attention to something that yes. suddenly the smallest world becomes the biggest world you know like actually there's so much there and it is you know it um to the question of even having land you know i realize is is a problematic one but it's, it's like scrubby mountainside um the house i grew up in is this old chestnut log cabin from 1785 that she's just um yeah it's just been kind of this like 
several decades project that she's been not even fixing it up, but just making it livable. And we close half the house in the winter. Um, she heats with a wood stove. It's very like off the grid in so many ways and blissful for that reason too. Um, the floors are all like cockeyed and uh, it's kind of like a sort of fun house when you're in it. And the house itself really is a kind of like capsule of, you know, um, yeah, I mean, beyond my mom, but like hundreds of years of information and of stories. And um, so I'm I'm interested in that and how place relays a kind of knowledge and how that knowledge is is also not fixed in time, you know, and our environments are always changing i was gonna say for better or for worse but i feel like yeah climate change is like well upon us yeah yeah like right we're in the catskills and we're in the middle of a a drought which is unusual i guess for the region i don't know enough about the region to fully understand like how unusual that is but it, it definitely feels strange you can feel these changes you know and yeah, so I think like paying attention to and being sensitive to and remaining open to environmental change is of great concern for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, How do you think about her and the changing world around her and, and the knowledge that she has? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost impossible for me to think about her and the changing world and all that without also thinking about my own role in our world and the decisions I'm making but also um yeah what becomes of my the house where I grew up and you know where my Mm. mom is and what becomes of her and um sort of not conflating but relating deeply my own mother with the landscape that is so, the features so um, impressively on her character. And I, I don't know how to sort of reckon with those questions that are sometimes feel really dire. You know, in a way, I do see myself back there. And so... Um, you like living there, basically? Yeah, I, I do. I really do. I'm just sort of trying to figure that out all the time trying to figure that out and I don't know what that looks like and like realistically it's not like there are jobs um or like bars or you know there's not not a whole lot going on but yeah I mean I think um um yeah the the sort of like changes that are you know befalling all of us all the time aren't lost on her either, even as she witnesses, you know, certain um, trends in the garden, you know, growing differently from one year to the next. And I mean, she's a sort of trained master naturalist and her job for the last sort of decade has been working at this nature study center sponsored by this university in Lynchburg, which is between like sort of Lynchburg and Roanoke are the closest like small cities and so she's she spends pretty much every day outside and she's like very aware of the ways in which the earth is a changing place um and I think you know 
she's not without stubbornness either in terms of, you know, chalking a, a bad year for the lettuces up to, you know, not enough rainfall without sort of furthering the question of not enough rainfall, pointing at like a greater sort of cause, even though I feel like she knows that, you know, climate change is here. She's both aware, but also, you know, would almost like rather, yeah, like maintain her sort of smaller sphere of information or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, which I respect. Point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also climate um, change is, I really dislike that word. I mean, we need it, right? But No, same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just becomes so yeah. easily just an abstract part of discourse, you know, like it means nothing right. so quickly. You can make jokes about it. You can sort of use it as a stand-in for the apocalypse if you don't believe totally. in God. Like it just, it becomes this concept, you know, and it yeah. sort of uh, obliterates the reality actually on 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 the ground as they say uh literally right. i guess and so i'm wondering like yeah for someone like your mom who who mm -hmm. is so closely observing the landscape and has for her entire life mm -hmm. i i sort of can imagine like that it's it feels almost like an impossible abstraction yeah um, oh that's so well put yeah it's an impossible abstraction it's yeah i think like you're saying it it's it's almost too easy to just say oh like climate change that's the that's the big issue of our day um but you know what can i do i don't know it's like it's, <laughs> we've been talking about knowledge i don't think there's any one great solution or any one great answer i think there are exciting propositions with how best to offset our carbon emissions you know and um the the various climate change bills that like or we're, it still feels like we're at the beginning of, yeah. of even trying to address this issue that is right in front of us but i do come back to you know um awareness of our immediate surroundings and becoming better acquainted in an effort to better try to figure out what can feel so much of the time like an abstract impossibility that is, you know, beyond ourselves. It's so easy and it's so true to feel overwhelmed by all of this, this earthly disaster, um, you know, but I, 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 I really believe in just you know, the fact that it's, it's, it's not, not worthwhile to at least learn the names of the flowers while we have them. Uh, not that like language even has the power to preserve anything and it's not like flowers gave themselves those names but I guess in an effort and maybe that's our best effort at acquainting ourselves with the natural world that we have so thoroughly taken for granted yeah you said when we were talking about the mama poems um, mm -hmm. you said that one of the reasons that you're writing them that you're kind of recording her voice is because you are aware you know that she won't will not live forever you know what if something happens to her mm -hmm. and i think yeah there's definitely i think all of us grown-up kids think about that and um 
And I think when we try and, you know, make some sort of efforts toward preserving, right, like the like the things they know or the things that are, you know, your mom knows, I think such a such an obvious thing to preserve would be like, well, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about, you know, mm. whatever, you know, like the life story in a kind of oral history way like that, you know. And mm-hmm. and I feel like with these mama poems, you're not doing that. You know, you're keeping a very different kind of record. Um why these words? Why is that what you want to preserve? How you want to most mm. remember your mom? Yeah, um, great question. Because I maybe I it's because I feel like and she's always sort of loosely joking about like writing a memoir and how I'll have to write help her write it because she can't spell <laughs> very well. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's had a ridiculous life. Um, but I think, too, like, you know, if I were to ask her to describe her childhood when she ran away from home at age 12 and was living in a teepee for a year or whatever, like, I think maybe she might, yeah, become self-conscious of the story that she's telling in, in the way that she feels like she should be telling it or something. And so, I don't know, I think... um yeah, I, I almost don't want to, wouldn't want to ask her to give too much of herself away. I'm not looking to like pimp out my mom's whole story in the interest of my poetry. It's more that I, I think the, the language that, again, accidentally, you know, bubbles up when asked to, you know, name all the horses she can remember or whatever actually speaks more closely to um she, like she might not ask that same question of herself like she whether she likes it or not she's been given this prompt you know and um <laughs> here we are Chelsea Harlan's debut collection is titled Bright Shade and was selected as a winner of the 2022 American Poetry Review Honigman First Book Prize by Jericho Brown. Bright Shade will come out in the fall. Chelsea Harlan is also the author of two chapbooks, Country Music and Mummy. She received a scholarship to attend the John Ashbury Home School, a literary grant from the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. And besides working at a public library in the Catskills, she's also a poetry reader for Raleigh Review. To find out more, check out her website, Chelsea Harlan, that's Chelsea and then Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, dot com. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefoos and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.